there are so many aspects within uh, within the Bible which are which are harsh, which are very difficult. At some point, I don't know where it transitioned. I don't know if it was post sixty seven. Again, I don't know if it's after so good. I don't know when. I feel like there was a transition of seeing those parts of Tanakh of aspects of, you know, we could say the book of judges, we could say the, um, say for Yoshua or Kings, which has some harsh parts to it becoming the four, maybe those aspects of Tanakh, which were difficult texts to, to deal with have now become not difficult to that text, but have become prescriptions. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This past Shabbat, on the streets of Hebron, Jewish people initiated attacks on Palestinians. As the Times of Israel reports, Israelis clashed with Palestinians and security forces in the West Bank city of Hebron on Saturday, leaving at least three people hurt, the military said. The clashes came as thousands of Jewish Israelis spent the weekend in the city for an annual pilgrimage tradition. According to the Israeli Defense Forces, Jewish worshippers being escorted by the army to the tomb of Otniel ben Kanaz attacked Palestinians with stones who also responded with stone throwing. The army said one Israeli man assaulted a female soldier with a wooden stick, lightly injuring her. Several suspects were detained, also assaulted soldiers, the IDF said, before they were handed over to police. In a separate violent incident in Hebron, the IDF said two Palestinians were injured by stones hurled by Israelis. The IDF said troops treated the two at the scene before they were taken by the Palestinian Red Crescent Emergency Service for further treatment. A clip showed an Israeli man slapping a Palestinian teenager in the street before soldiers arrived to disperse the Palestinians, not the Israeli attackers. I've been quoting a Times of Israel article by Emmanuel Fabian that was published on the 19th of November, 2022. Today's interview was recorded before those events, But what happened in Hebron only makes the topic more acute. This is not about politics per se, but about whether religious Zionism and modern orthodoxy have started to abandon some of their humanistic qualities in exchange for a nationalist and perhaps supremacist vision. Rabbi Todd Berman wrote about this in a well-received Times of Israel blog post entitled Choosing a Kinder, Gentler Religious Zionism, and I was honored to talk to him about where our community may be going and what we should do to affect change. We discuss some important issues, including the concept of halacha as the will of God and what that says about religious pluralism, how to deal with troubling texts from the Bible, whether students are picking up racist and xenophobic ideas in our schools, the dereliction of duty by some rabbinic leaders, and more. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you should have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Rabbi Todd Berman is the Director of Institutional Advancement at Yeshivat Eretz Hatzvi. In addition, he has held numerous posts in education from the high school level through adult education. He founded the Jewish Learning Initiative on campus at Brandeis University and served as the rabbinic advisor to the Orthodox community there for several years. Previously, he was a Ram at Midrash at Lindenbaum, where he also served as the Rav of the dormitory. A graduate of Columbia University and Harvard Graduate School, he learned at Yeshivat Haaretzion and received smicha from Yeshivat Hamiftar in Efrat. Rabbi Todd Berman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi Scott. On November 8th, Rabbi Todd, you published a blog post in the Times of Israel entitled Choosing a Kinder, Gentler Religious Zionism. And I want to quote a bit of that to you now to open our conversation. Towards the beginning of that article, you wrote, I wasn't born into ideological religious Zionism or its cousin, modern orthodoxy. Raised as an active Jew in the conservative movement schools, camps and synagogues, I found something spiritually missing. I felt a lack of religious consistency, and to be honest, the serious commitment needed to satisfy my religious aspirations. Like so many friends, I moved movements. I entered the crucible of yeshiva study in Israel for several years and pursued an intense and what I saw as authentic learning regimen in religious Zionist environments. The strong sense of community, worship of God, and concern for the Jewish people touched my soul deeply, while the Torah, Talmud, and the Sea of Commentaries challenged my mind profoundly. I always felt that in yeshiva, I found my people. Zionist education played a role in my youth. However, living and raising children in the Jewish homeland sealed the deal. Despite the acute security situation, I, like so many of my neighbors, relished the ability to live in the Jewish biblical heartland. The beauty of modern orthodoxy and religious Zionism attracted me. I am worried that something deep-rooted is changing. And that's the line that I want to concentrate on right now. What, to you, Todd, feels different today from what it felt like years ago? What I think has changed, at least it's a feeling I have. I think it's probably true. When I first came to Yeshiva, um, that was in the 80s, I first I, I was uh, studying at JTS in a, in a joint program with Lutz College in Columbia. And I remember I uh, happened... It's a long story. I'll make it very short. I I was planning to go to Hebrew University for my junior year abroad, and then I read uh, Dean Steinsaltz's Rabbi Steinsaltz's Central Talmud, and I decided I just want to Gemara. So I looked at Yeshivot. I ended up going to Yeshivot Hamiftar with uh, Ray Bravender, Ray Riskin, or David Ebner, uh, Nachum Strader. Um, and the context, you know, at one point in time. Uh, Rav Amital had actually asked Ray Bravner to join him with with Mehmad. Um and I kind of felt the world I was in, and eventually I also studied at Gush at Haritz Yeshiva Haritzion. At least the atmosphere I was in was was you know anti-racist. That was not an idea. Looking at the humanism of of uh, of everyone and truly the people I was around, my friends, I would say were more open towards. Uh, a humanistic Judaism. I remember Rabbi Riskin often talked about issues of loving everyone as an extensive, which I talk about in the blog post, but he talked about it extensively to everyone. And over time, I have certainly felt like 
I raised my kids in Datsumi schools. And when uh, um, one thing, these national religious schools here in Israel, right? One thing that stuck out of my mind, I remember after the disengagement from Gaza, uh, we actually took our kids, gave out candy and stuff to kids uh, who were leaving Gaza. After the disengagement from Gaza, my, my daughter's school, there was a big sign uh, which said, Loni Shkaf, Loni Slach, we won't forget and we won't forgive. And that really shook me to the core. It's like, that's not a core idea in Judaism. The, the, in fact, um, if you open up Tanakh, so David HaMelech uh, is, is uh, you know, condemns people who want to want to hunt down the family of Shaul because they don't forgive people. And, uh, and I, I felt that my kids were going to schools where more and more, one time one of the one of the teachers was asked, so this is, I don't know, this is 10 years ago, was asked about non-Jewish souls. And he said, well, I have to be honest with the kids. I mean, he's a bit of a um, breast lover. Um, and he said, you know, obviously non-Jews don't have the same souls that Jews do. Now, there certainly is a trend like that in Hasidut, and the Tanya has been criticized for that, the famous work by the first lover to Rebbe. But I was a little startled that over time, this seems to have taken over a, a certain, I, I feel, now I, I'm not a sociologist, I can only talk about my own personal experience and feelings, that more and more there is a, a hardcore racism of, listen, politically I'm probably kind of in the middle, and I certainly support 100% the IDF and our defensive actions and whatnot. But, you know, if, if uh, uh, as I just heard a podcast with Danny Gordis, how can you not be saddened when you hear that kids are killed, even if they're trying to break down the, the, the borders in Gaza, they're kids, right? There's a neshama there. And I just feel that over time, I have felt there's a callousness that that has crept in to the point that, you know, I mean, I'm not the only one that <laughs> if we can have parties with people who certainly were affiliated with Mirakahana. Uh, that I just I don't understand it. Like it's it's a radical. It seems to me a radical shift. Now it could be this shift. You know, if you look at Mafdal, the National Religious Party before '67, so they they uh, were not in favor of the war. Uh, if you read some right. of the literature from that time, you get an idea of a very humanistic view. If you read Ruf Cook, loving everyone and trying to figure out a way to cross boundaries and love everyone. And over time, from the national standpoint, I mean, regarding the Palestinians, I feel like there's a dehumanization of Palestinians in my neighborhood and the greater religious Zionist world. I feel, I, I feel that way. And I feel that in a, in a, a religious view, there's a triumphalism, which kind of entered into um, modern orthodoxy to the point that uh, the the disdain where, where chief rabbis can call non-orthodox rabbis clowns and things like that. I mean, that should be an anathema to speak that way. I don't. Uh, you can disagree with them. I certainly do. Um, but you know, these are human beings who have dedicated their lives to to the Jewish people. Uh, they're not clowns. You know, again, let's disagree. Let's disagree theologically. Let's disagree practically. Let's disagree in regards to our commitment to meet to vote, all those things, those legitimate disagreements. But at a certain point, the dehumanization is, that's what I think has changed. Just the, the callousness and dehumanization. And that, that's what I feel. I often like to cite what you just said. I remember Michael Oren's book, Six Days of War, about the Six Day War. And it's fascinating because obviously that was a labor-led government. That's all there had been to that point until the late 70s with Menachem Begin. And during the war, as Jordan was shelling, 
the Western Jerusalem Jewish area of Yushalayim, there was a debate in the government council whether or not they should start fighting back. And the main holdout was the National Religious Party saying we should not fight Jordan. Right. They were the peaceniks at that time. Things changed after 67 and more specifically after 1973 with the rise of Gush Emunim. But Rabbi Berman, I'd like to ask you a little more about this change that's taken place. This is not something which you can necessarily answer because, as you said, you're not a sociologist. At the same time, I felt that same feeling that things have changed, that things are moving in a negative direction when it comes to dehumanization. And I don't really want to talk about politics per se. That's more the jumping off point. I mean, in general, in our religious community. Where do you think this comes from? Why do you think that this new attitude or newer attitude some would say a racist attitude. Some would say a less kind, less gentle attitude. Where has it come from? How did that creep into the Judaism that you and I were brought up with when we were growing up? I don't know. I can't put my finger on. I mean, I can talk about my kids' education. I think that that many aspects of my children's education, again, they went through natural religious school systems the entire time. Um, and much of the education I appreciate. You know, let me put that out there. I, uh, I, you know, someone who teaches and has been teaching for 30 years, teaching graduates through Shiva high schools in America and public schools in America and Australia, whatever, I think their education is quite solid. I, I, there, there's a reputation that Israeli education is not solid and it's not my kids' experience. Now, they were growing up in the greater Gushetzion, a fraught Gushetzion area, which maybe they have, you know, schools that, that, are, that are, you know, emphasize education and um, whatnot. Um, or in Jerusalem. So, you know, in regards to math, um, in regards to science, I wouldn't mind if they had be better facilities, but I think they're getting a decent education on, on many fronts. One aspect which is odd for me um, as a, someone who grew up in America is I feel that there is a great myopia in the approach towards like world history. Their history is primarily focused on, on Jewish history. And when they do touch on world history, it comes from a purely Jewish lens uh, to, to a large degree. And I think that a uh, certain focus on aspects of Tanakh, which it's funny, you know, Tanakh in the 19th century, early 20th century was more or less the dominion of, uh, you know, enlightenment Jews and uh, whatever. And with the, uh, the, the, the Jewish community in Israel loved Tanakh. You know, the Bible is, is, is our is a central aspect. There are so many aspects within, uh, within the Bible which are, which are harsh, which are very difficult. At some point, I don't know where it transitioned. I don't know if it was post-67. Again, I don't know if it's after so good. I don't know when. I feel like there was a transition of seeing those parts of Tanakh, of aspects of, you know, we could say the Book of Judges. We could say the Sefer Yoshua or Kings, which has some harsh parts to it, becoming the four. These aren't, you know, if you read someone like Rosenzweil Hirsch writing in the 19th century in Germany, um, he has extremely harsh things to say about uh, about the sons of Jacob when they kill the community in, in Shechem. And I don't know if someone would, would say that today. Say, oh, of course, you know, <laughs> they should have done that. They did the right thing. And, and Hirsch is very taken aback by that. Perhaps that's an aspect of diaspora Judaism which didn't carry over to Israel. And now that we're in an Israeli context, the Jews dominate maybe those aspects of Tanakh, which were kind of looked disparagingly or were, were difficult texts to, to deal with, have now become not difficult to that text, but have become prescriptions. You know, yes, of course we should deal hard, harshly with them. Of course we should kick them out. I'll give you one example. My children, when uh, the school they go to, when they finish, when they finish Brace You, when they finish the whole book of Genesis, 
So many of them were taken with the school to Hebron. It was a wonderful thing. We went to go see the, the Cave of the Patriarchs. It was beautiful. Uh, this is with, with, with some of my girls. A well-known rabbi's wife, a well-known rabbi's wife was speaking to the kids. And what do you speak? These are kids who are six years old, seven years old. What are you going to say to that? Like, I, I don't know. The Bible stories are wonderful. And, you know, the first man and Abraham, whatever. And she started talking about kicking out all the Arabs. And she pointed to, like, the other Arabs, areas in Hebron and tried to get the kids to chant, kick them out, kick them out. And I was looking around at parents. And, and you know, many of us are people who grew up in America. Everyone's jaws just dropped. And just trying to get our kids to chant, kick them out. Kick them. I, I don't know where that rallying cry came from. I don't know how much the second Tafada took a role. I was out of the country for second Tafada. It was a, uh, I was Rabbi Brandeis from 2000, 2003. And I definitely felt a change in, in many of my acquaintances during those years because they were hellish years. And I, I didn't experience, I experienced them from outside the country. It's, you know, I, I've spent 30 years almost in Israel. Those three years of the second Tafada, I wasn't here. So, uh, I mean, we, we dealt with 9-11 and, all the, and from that vantage point. Um, it wasn't a piece of cake, understood. Yeah. Uh, but so that, that's, I, I don't know if that clicked it, but it's, you, we, we know that the, as people are saying that, you know, when Kahana spoke, the Zionists all turned their back on him uh, way back when. And now it's, it's, it's becoming an accepted position. And I don't know. I don't know how, but it, it's, it's scary. It is. I'll tell you one thing, which is, tangentially related. It's not a political issue, but it is certainly an attitude. My single greatest regret as a parent in a school meeting happened in a very specific time. The parents were invited to my kid's school here in Beit Shemesh for a Purim program for my oldest son. He was in, I think, I don't know, seventh or eighth grade. I don't remember anymore. Maybe, maybe a little younger. I don't remember. And, you know, we sat down in the classroom and they brought in a guest speaker and it was a Purim program. So he was talking about the Megillah and this particular guest speaker who was not part of the school, but he was brought in to the school. He asked an interesting question. He said, Bigtan and Teresh were plotting to kill Ahasuerus. Mordechai heard about the plot, reported it to Ahasuerus's people, and Bigtan and Teresh were put to death. Mordechai saved Ahasuerus's life. The question was, why would Mordechai have done this? According to Chazal, Ahasuerus was a Jew hater. So why would Mordechai have cared about saving Ahasuerus? Now, obviously, the simple answer is because you kill the king, you also kill the king's wife, so Esther would have been in danger. But forget that. Whether it's a good question or a bad question, this is the question that he asked. Why would Mordechai have saved Ahasuerus at the expense of Big Tan and Teresh? Ahasuerus was a bad guy. The kids gave various answers. He said, no, no, no. The answer he said at the end was, better to kill two non-Jews by killing Big Tan and Teresh than one. Ahasuerus. And my regret is that I was so shocked I didn't stand up and actively protest. My jaw dropped, but I didn't say a word. To this day, I cannot believe I didn't say anything. So I definitely understand the problem. Can I, I will respond to that. I think that one thing that you're saying is hitting a nail on the head is that I think many of us, like that event in Hebron, um, where I looked around at all these friends I had there and everyone was shocked. I think many of us are afraid to say anything. Um, you know, the, the the this train has gotten has gotten out, and there are many aspects to Israel which which over the thirty some years I've lived in Israel, I feel like there's a violence that's crept in in many aspects of society. You see it in 
Haredi society where Haredim are riding in various contexts. You see it with the uh, hilltop youth where they, you know, there's so many cases. There were cases in, in Gaza. And uh, besides the, 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 it seems to me that the police have become much rougher with everyone. You know, I often see like, if the police break up a left-wing protest, the left-wingers complain about police brutality against the left. The same thing is true about the right. I've seen on both sides. It's clear there's police brutality, and that's a problem, not right or left. And I can't feel like there's a there's a, a it's a scary aspect of violence in our society, which is impregnated with you know not the, the like you know uh, the hot pluricha kamoka jumping out <laughs> and there's little How do we look at the Tzolom of the and everyone, and how do we find uh, kind of you know uh, a type of shalom, but rather like you know. Uh, everyone's fighting for their little piece of turf, and it, it's uh, it, that's also a, playing a role, I think. Rabbi Berman, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago about choosing our problematic texts. You said sometimes they're looked at not as problematic texts, but perhaps as prescriptions for the future. So here's another quote from your article. The incoming leaders of the religious Zionist party are reputed not to reflect the ethos of Orthodox tradition I recognize and love. To be clear, it's not that I can't make textual arguments from biblical or Talmudic literature to support homophobic, xenophobic, and dare I say, racist positions. Nor are the views of some politicians a complete historical anomaly. It would be dishonest to say otherwise. The texts are there. Some embarrassing information appears in history books. But I believe these elements do not lie at the heart of Torah. Every traditional Jew confronts various sources and authorities and must choose which aspects of the past to emulate and which leaders to follow. Which should dominate and which others should play a minor role ultimately defines how a Jew and how any religious person sees the will of God. We are given a choice on how to read our tradition. I agree with you. And I know Rabbi Sachs wrote a book that deals extensively with difficult texts entitled Not in God's Name. With that said... If anyone can decide which texts are central and which texts are peripheral or don't really reflect the will of God, how does that not lead to religious anarchy? How does that not just become Judaism is whatever I say it is? Because frankly, if I can choose any one text out of context, I can make Judaism into whatever I want. So who are you and I to say, and again, we're on the same page, but who are you and I to say that this text is actually what Judaism is about, while that text is an anomaly that needs to be reinterpreted? Look, that's an excellent question. Um, some people challenged me on that piece, rightfully so. My response, I don't know if this is satisfactory. My response is that as much as I was describing something, like I was you know, prescribing and suggesting we have to choose those texts, I think I'm also describing a religious reality. I'll take a, a very mundane example. A student is going to decide, and this is something from my life, which I deal with. I'm here in, in, in America recruiting. A student's going to decide which yeshiva to go to. Now, that's a choice that he's confronted with. No one's plopping him down saying, here, you have to go to this yeshiva. So now he's confronted with a whole bunch of things that would be factors that he'd be interested in. You know, there's going to be very mundane factors. Uh, the, I like the food, like the location, like whatever. I'm always struck that not often enough is the worldview of the yeshiva taken into consideration. Um, it, do the do the leaders of that yeshiva reflect um, reflect ideology that, that you feel comfortable with? And that's we all make those decisions. We're, when we hire rabbis, we're going to choose rabbis that kind of jive with our worldview. When we again select going to yeshiva, when we open up books, we're going to champion those. There's no reason, for instance, if, if uh, years ago 
a famous rabbi, Dudzi Hoffman's Chuvot, were less well known. They kind of went out of print. And that was a print. It's like, you know, the irony of history that a printer kind of decided uh, the access to his work. Now, he's a brilliant theoretician from Germany who's on the more liberal side. As one of my dear rabbi colleagues said, maybe it's incumbent on us to make sure that the rabbis that we're consulting, meaning the rabbis of previous generations, are the ones that we feel comfortable with in a worldview. That's what everyone does. Ramosha Feinstein famously said how he became a posek is that people approached him and someone asked him a question. They liked the answer. So other people approached him and, and uh, they liked the answer and told their friends and their friends told their friends to quote a an old uh, shampoo commercial, and their friends told their friends, eventually he became a world-class post-take. Well, that's the same thing as we do select those, both the rabbis we follow, the communities that we're going to gravitate towards. Um, so the, the we every human being is going to start with some ideological assumptions. I have no magic wand to exactly be able to untangle the aspects of, of the human um, and the divine within, within anything. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz wrote a wonderful article on, on what is Jewish philosophy, where he suggested that every generation theology, Jewish theology, is going to be very time, place oriented and very personal and subjective to the thinker. So if that's the case in theology, and I, I think he's right. I think he made a convincing, convincing argument um, that's true in, in so many areas. So do we want to emphasize the humanistic? aspects of Torah, they're also in Torah. Um, and then we have to deal with the ones that are less humanistic. So th that's their choice, I think, in the end of the day. And, you know, uh, what is God, what is the real Ratzon Hashem? It's, it's hard, it's hard to entangle, but they're kind of like these meta issues, which the Torah seems to send a direction that in, you know, I quoted in my article, but it's as famous as can be in Jewish literature. The Ramban, Nachmanides' idea of, of holiness is deciding those things that you, despite the fact they're permissible, we're going to choose not to engage in. So that's a choice. He says it right there. You're going to choose. Yes, you can find the, the his, his golden phrase. We all know. You can be the most despicable person in the letter of the law. But that's not what the law wants. That's not what the Torah wants. It wants you to be holy. So we have to think about what holiness is. Will some person say, well, holiness is to destroy the rest of the world and just leave me? That's not a holiness that I like, you know, and, and that is what I'm going to decide not to fit with that, that community. So Rabbi Berman, let me ask a follow-up question about that. How do you reconcile this way of seeing Judaism with the fact that in a theoretical Torah society, which admittedly we do not have and it's not on the immediate horizon, but in a theoretical Torah society, in that society, the law is normative. It is imposed by judges and officers, and it's not a personal choice. And theoretically, in that society, that society can choose the more stringent view or perhaps the less humanistic viewpoint. I've been confronted with this many times. I know Rav Soloveitchik himself talks about it. I have a quote where he says, religious law that is imposed from without, from the outside, because it is not accepted freely by the individual, lacks a type of religious meaning. The Rav says, I know you can ask me questions about this from Jewish law and from the Torah. Nevertheless, he says, this is what I believe. But he doesn't explain, as far as I know, why that's the case. So how would you explain that, at least in your understanding? How do we reconcile the fact that a Judaism, which I can decide on my own to be humanistic, is not necessarily a Judaism that a legislative body in the future would decide is its Judaism? I don't totally follow the parameters of the question. Like if there's an hadron, if we, I saw some people like, of course we should have a sin. I, I went to, I'll tell you, this, this is not politics, but it is politics. 
Uh, I went to hear uh, Batal Smutrich speak before the election. Someone who knew my views and knew my views did not coalesce with his. So come ask him your questions and he'll answer them. I don't really have a chance to ask the questions, whatever. It was a, a quick meeting. But uh, Batal Smutrich, uh, you know, Latobato in his, in, in his behalf, he kept saying we have to have a democracy. And uh, I, I really want to defend democratic values, uh, which I was happy to hear that he said. And a person, a man behind me kept screaming out, there is no democracy in Judaism. There is no democracy in Judaism. So this fellow, I guess, wants us to have a king tomorrow and have a Sanhedrin and, and, and whatnot. So I don't have a perfect answer, like what happens if the Sanhedrin comes and it doesn't agree with me. But I do know that, it, you know, we both know the famous Mishnah in Makot, where, uh, where Rabbi Kiva says that, you know, the Mishnah says, you know, a court that kills once in 70 years, a bloody court. No, once in 70 years. And Rabbi Kiva says, I would never kill anyone. The, the, the important thing is being honest. That's the way it's quoted. Rabbi Kiva says, I would never kill anyone if I sat on Sanhedrin. The, the people don't quote the end of the Mishnah. It's where Shimon Gamliel says, because of you, you've spread bloodshed throughout Israel. Meaning, seemingly, the, 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 the conundrum of capital punishment we have today is the same moral issue that the rabbis of the second century were, were battling with. But the Gemara then says, how can Rabbi Akiva say that he would never execute anyone? The, the, the laws are quite clear. So it says, well, Rikiva would utilize these complex arguments. You find that the one person was stabbed. How do you know? He didn't have a hole in the exact spot where the sword went through. Right? So why was Rabbi Akiva doing that? Because clearly Rabbi Akiva believed that capital punishment was problematic. Right? He thought it was ethically problematic. I'm not Rabbi Akiva, but I can look at him as a model. Right? Rabbi Akiva said, I would not execute someone. So I, I think that I would hope that the Sanhedrin would be influenced. That's why I'm happy we don't have a Sanhedrin, because I don't think we're ready for it. Um, right, I you know, the Rabbi Sholem came, came and sent the Messiah tomorrow, and, he's, you know, and, and it filled, filled all the criteria, so we'll deal with that. But right now, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, such a theoretical question, and we have practical models like Rabbi Akiva that I, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, you know, I hope the Rabbi Akivas win, win the day. <laughs> they filled us in head with Rabbi Akivas. That would be okay. I remember hearing years ago about a certain rabbi who said that the reason we don't have a Beit HaMikdash nowadays is that if we were to go to the Beit HaMikdash and look at it, we would see what looks like basically a barnyard, animals all over the place. And because that's what we would see, that shows we're not ready. We don't have that level of Kedushah of holiness to understand the spirituality behind it. We could take the same idea and extend it to the Sanhedrin because we probably would misuse it. Perhaps we're not ready for a Sanhedrin. I'm sure a lot of people won't be happy to hear that or don't agree with that, but I agree with you on that point. I want to mention something that you wrote on Facebook in the past few days. Uh -oh. Ben Gvir made a statement that he wanted the state of Israel to stop recognizing reform conversions with regard to Israeli citizenship. Right. And you said, if I, I don't want to misquote quote you, but you said, effectively, this statement of Ben Gvir only furthers your emphasis on what you wrote in your article, right. the importance of a kinder, gentler Judaism, religious Zionism. Now, a certain person wrote, someone I respect, as a comment, you had a back and forth. He said, look, Orthodox Jews don't accept Reform conversions. I don't know if there's an Orthodox Jew in the world or an Orthodox rabbi in the world who would say Reform conversions are valid conversions, according to Jewish law. So he asked you, a good question. He said, if it's true that you think that reform conversions should be accepted by the Israeli government, aren't you effectively saying non-Jews should be allowed to move to Israel? Now, I'm not arguing the point. I respect the position even as I disagree with it. I guess my question is this. Do you think that accepting reform conversions, is that something which is a moral 
requirement, an ethical requirement in your general move towards what you call the kinder, gently religious Zionism and modern orthodoxy? Or is it something that's pragmatic because otherwise we're going to divide the Jewish community of the world in two? Okay, so you already set the binary <laughs> to us read that a little bit. Well, okay, it could um, be something else also. So right. I, I think there's a huge difference between the halakha and like, you know, a halakhic state, which we don't have, and democracy. And uh, we, have a, we have a democracy. We have a, a fairly vibrant democracy. Um, and at this point in time in the world, I think that's a good thing. Um, I, uh, uh, there's a pragmatic aspect. There are many aspects to this. But the pragmatic one is there's very few reformed converts want to make aliyah. So the, the making such a statement really has no impact um, in reality. It just is, uh, it's just furthering like a, a triumphal, haha, we're going to be mean to you and, and not accept you as citizens. I, I still am not unraveled, and I don't think anyone's completely unraveled this Gordian knot of the state as a, as a democratic state for all its citizens, which is what a democracy is, and, and the role of halakhic Judaism. I do know that they're not one the same. Uh, the example I quoted in my articles, my little blog post, I don't call it an article, that's not an article. Uh, we wrote Heschel's article. This is the blog post. Uh, when I came across the Chua by Ramosha Feinstein, where he says, people approached him and said, we have a mikvah, and the non-Orthodox want to use mikvah for conversions, and we don't accept their conversions, what do we do? So he said, first of all, maybe you could say the mikvah is just off limits for any conversions, and everyone will do conversions in some other place. But that that won't work. So now the non-Orthodox paid for the building of the mikvah. They participated in the in the donations to build the mikvah. And Ramosha concludes, again, this is like 1962 or whatever, that you have no right to prevent them from using it for what they want to use it for. So I kind of feel like this state of Israel is a democracy built on the principles of modern liberal democracies. And, and that's the type of state that I want to live in at this time until like, the Messiah comes or something. And then we can unravel all these pieces. Um, and if that's the case, then I then I have total respect for every citizen. Um, and and I think world Jewry, world Jewry, you know, is famously, you know this, I know this, we all know this. Rabbi Soloveitchik made this dichotomy between between like the Jewish people and like the halachic the halachic people, um, you know, in uh, in in in, uh, in uh, right the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny. Yeah, and yeah, effect. yeah, and called it effect. Rolickenstein wrote about this as well. How to relate to the greater Jewish? It's a real, it's a real difficult nut to crack because um, sitting here in America and speaking to to the reality here, it's very complicated. There are many people who halakhically, you know, Orthodox halakha would not consider Jewish, and they're Jewish leaders. So how we deal with that? So I think we have to deal with it on two planes. I think we have to deal with it on the personal halakhic plane, and then we have to deal with it on the national plane. On the national plane, I see them all as part of my people. On the halakhic plane, it's something totally different. I think we have to live with that, with that tension and and kind of that dialectic of those two pieces, and and uh, and getting up and saying we won't, you know, we don't want to allow these people in the state anymore. And count to what benefit was that, except to like you know toot your own horn. So I, I just feel like here's an example where. No, I welcome everybody. Let's let's have a conversation. Let's welcome them in, and and you know we can explain our issues, their issues, and, and there's a there can be a lot of goodwill. You be, to be clear, on the other side too, there's some tension. You know, they don't, there's there's definitely orthophobia on the other side and right. orthodoxy. But I, I think that it, the, the the first step is to kind of be broad minded and say, okay, where can we where can we find common ground? And that's humanity, and and that's that's where I'm going with that. Okay, Rabbi Berman, I'm going to throw something out to you. Okay. 
And feel free to say, I completely disagree with this statement. But when I was reading your article and then that Facebook interaction you had made me think of something which I've been thinking a lot about. And I've spoken to some people about this. I want to throw something out, just speaking for myself. I wonder if a new dividing line is being established within orthodoxy. I don't mean in terms of denominations. We're not talking about that. But I mean in terms of worldview. And this might be unconscious. I don't mean everyone is thinking about this consciously. But I wonder if it might have to do with the definition of halakha as the will of God. And I wonder if the new dividing line is something like this. There are some people who say halakha and the will of God are synonymous. If it's halakha, it is the will of God. If it is not halakha, it is not the will of God. And that's the end of the story. There are other people within the Orthodox community who will say halakha is 100% the will of God. But the will of God also includes more than just halakha. In other words, halakha is a subset, so to speak, of a much larger will of God, which means there could be things that are not in halakha. And as a halakhic Jew, I will not do them. However, I can't necessarily say that God inherently dislikes that, and I know for a fact it's not the will of God. I'm effectively saying that while halakha is the will of God, the will of God can be bigger than halakha itself. I wonder if some of this can relate to that too. That relates both to intra-Jewish issues as well as interfaith issues in terms of our understanding God's relationship with people who are, first of all, not Orthodox, and secondly, in a larger sense, people who are not Jewish at all. Let me throw that out to you. Do you think that's a reasonable distinction oh, or, think, or not? First of all, I think it is. I think there's a historical precedent to that distinction as well. This kind of plays into, Rob Lichtenstein suggests, or Soloveitchik's gift to Jewish thought was, uh, was like the philosophy of halakha. And he clearly, if you read Halakhic Man, you know, that is how Halakhic Man defines reality as halakha. I think that modern orthodoxy could really use a dose of Abraham Joshua Heschel, which is one of the motivations for me writing that article. But, but it's something I've been engrossed in a lot in the past few years, where Heschel critiques Rabbi Soloveitchik for what he called pan-halachism, and that, uh, that making halacha the be-all and end-all, whereas Judaism is, is much broader. Like, you know, there's, there's art, and there's poetry, and there's Agadah, and there's stories, and all these are part of Judaism. They're part of, you know, Rehud HaLevi wrote beautiful poems that, that some of them were complex. The Ramchal wrote plays that were secular. You know, they weren't focused on that. So there's, there is a broader piece to that. One of the rebellions, really Hasidut, and you see this, I, you know, I'm now I'm learning Menachem of Chernobyl, who's very early, um, a student of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magda Meserich. He certainly dealt with this tension of suggesting there are things which are ways to worship God, which are outside the framework of halakha. When he talks about Amavino feeding people, feeding people even doesn't fit within a pristine or, or even eating yourself. Uh, Hasidim were into this idea that you can eat for God. You can do things for God that are far beyond it. This is a huge topic. Rav Lichtenstein talked about in his famous article on is there a, is there an ethic outside of halakha and pinpoints the makes a, a very specific reading of the even though the great halakhist Chazanish who said that usually uh, halakha and ethics coincide uh, wasn't mean to have ethics which are outside that framework. Um, I would say they have to fit for me. They would have to fit within some greater Jewish ideology. Um, within texts and and whatnot to make sense as part of Judaism, but I definitely I, I think that's one hundred percent true. You know, the uh, the brothers whose names are always escaped me, the Frimmers, uh, they wrote an article on women's aliot, and the very end of the article, well, one of their articles, there were several articles on this topic, they said something which really touched me, and they said that there was a critique, that's where uh, Chaim Salvechik's critique 
of uh, of people who looked at the law too much, who everything became textual and not to we're not doing the whole client salvation piece, but uh, things being too textual and it, it became a, 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 a movement towards humra because, well, if it's in the text, we can be more stringent in the text. The text creates stringency. And people said, well, we have to look broader outside the text. And the, the framers were putting it on the other side as well. Well, just because it's not textual, right, doesn't mean that you should therefore do it. Right? They were saying that both sides need to have some nuance. I actually think that's what Heschel, Dr. Heschel argued. He certainly appreciated and felt his life was bound by halakha, but he felt that there was a broader picture of the Agadah of Am Yisrael. Although I, I would argue that some of the things cropping up, there is no halakha that you have to hate little kids who Arab kids, like that's not a halacha. Like, you know, that, that's, that's just, also true. Yeah, it just doesn't exist. So one of my kids came home from school and he said, it's, it's a hard dad. I go to school and they're all like, well, all Arabs are terrorists. You know, even little kids are all terrorists. Um, and that's just not, that, 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 that's not a way to educate. You know, my, in my house, we don't speak that way. Um, so they're a little startled and, uh, and uh, um, yeah, my kids were, were always a little, uh, confused maybe because the message they're getting from some of their teachers and some of their peers uh was was you know very racist uh uh essentialist you know ours by definition are terrorists and and you know and, and and then that i think that's a horror i think that's a real problem it doesn't mean you have to be be uh weak but yeah i i hear that i hear that there's a broader ethic a broader notion uh looking at that the 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 gamut of Jewish literature and texts to inform our worldview. And I think that's really important. You just mentioned halachic man and the pan-halachic viewpoint, as uh, Heschel calls it. I'm going to quote something from halachic man right now. This is... Page 91. <laughs> you saw my post. Yeah. This is Lawrence Kaplan's translation. You're right. I put this up on Facebook. Right. The Rav writes, my uncle, Rav Meir Berlin Barilan, told me that once Rav Chaim of Brisk was asked what the function of a rabbi is. Rav Chaim replied, to redress the grievances of those who are abandoned and alone, to protect the dignity of the poor, and to save the oppressed from the hands of his oppressor. Neither ritual decisions nor political leadership constitutes the main task of halachic man. Far from it. The actualization of the ideals of justice and righteousness is the pillar of fire which halachic man follows when he as a rabbi and teacher in Israel, serves his community. The Rav here, quoting his grandfather, Rav Chaim Brisker, defines the role of a rabbi as that of justice, redressing the injustice of his community, helping the oppressed and the poor. Sounds like Yirmiyahu. That, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, they had models. This was not right. a yesh Ayin. This came out right. of something. And one of the things that bothers me tremendously is the lack of leadership in this particular area. I do not mean that there are not leaders who do this. I know that there are. I've seen them with my own eyes. It seems that too often in the public sphere, rabbis often feel the need to do otherwise. Let me give you two examples and throw it out for your take on this. One example is, and again, this isn't a political discussion, but the examples are drawn from politics because for better or for worse, and I think it's definitely for worse, in Israel, religion and politics are deeply intertwined. The case of Aryeh Derry, who is the leader of the Shas party and who holds the top seat on the Shas list. Just 10 months ago, in December 2021, Aryeh Derry made a plea deal with the attorney general such that he admitted to two offenses involving tax fraud. And as a result, he was removed from the Knesset, although he was allowed to run again in these past elections, which indeed he did, once again having the top spot in Shas and obviously getting in. 
Let's also remember that this is not his first brush with the law. He was in jail 20 years ago for 22 months, also for financial impropriety. So this is somebody who's been involved in financial shenanigans. And by the way, not that it would really matter, but this is not a case of Robin Hood where he was using money to help vote. This was to buy an apartment for his brother. This was for personal gain, in other words. Someone who's involved in that kind of financial shenanigans and who is the leader of a religious party, which is ostensibly led by a series of rabbis, a council of Torah sages of sorts, who determined the policy of the party. Forget Arya Derry. I don't really care about Arya Derry so much. But what bothers me is that the rabbis who are leading this party, at least as far as I know, didn't say a word about his leading the party again after twice being convicted. Let's remember, as soon as Arya Derry left the Knesset 10 months ago, it was immediately announced that he would continue to lead Shas from outside and that in the next elections, he would resume his spot at the top of the party. If the true motivation of rabbis has to be Tzedek, Tzedek Tirdov, pursuing justice, then having somebody who is a twice convicted criminal at the top of the party list sends a terrible message. Even if we're not worried about messages, how could you do that? How could a party that is representing Torah have somebody who keeps on violating the Torah at the very top of its list. Now, Arya Derry is admittedly an extraordinarily talented politician. He's one of the most talented politicians in Israel's history. That shouldn't matter because the ends don't justify the means. And that's an example for me, forget Arya Derry, but of the rabbis failing miserably to rein in this kind of thing. The second example is a much more recent example. Over the past couple of weeks, there have been very serious accusations leveled against Rav Tau, who's the head of the Har Hamor Yeshiva, and the spiritual leader of the Noam Party, which is one of the three factions that made up the religious Zionist list, which entered the Knesset with about 14 seats. Upon hearing these charges against Rav Tau, two rabbis, Rav Sherlo and Rav Stav, said that it must be investigated. They did not say he was guilty. They very clearly said, we don't know if he's guilty, but there's enough evidence that the police should be involved and there should be an official police investigation. A certain Rosh Yeshiva, in response to this, castigated Rav Sherlo and Rav Stav, saying that they're doing this because they want to be looked at as social justice warriors, that they may even know that it isn't true, that they're machalalei shem shamayim, they're desecrating God's name, etc., etc. Once again, I'm not talking about Rav Tau. I don't know what the story is there. I'm talking about ad hominem attacks against people who call for nothing more than a police investigation. This sort of rabbinic leadership is the opposite of what Rav Chaim Brisker was talking about. Rabbi Berman, what do we do about this apparent lack of rabbinic leadership in so many instances, how do we create a kinder, gentler Judaism, a kinder, gentler modern orthodoxy, a kinder, gently religious Zionism, when so many people who represent those ideals refuse to speak out when there's injustice and won't take that mantle of leadership? When the Rav Stavs and Rav Sherlows and Rav Lichtenstein Zatzals seem to often be the exceptions rather than the rule. Uh, so... <laughs> So first of all, I agree with with your your angst on all this, obviously. And I'm a big fan of uh, Rosherlo and and a really big fan of Rostov. Uh, but maybe this goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. Uh, l- leaders leaders aren't born. Leaders are made, and the made making part is two parts: what they do and what people who follow them do. Leaders are only made by followers, right? So I think that that. Uh, uh, it's incumbent. I mean, I I do not see the Moetzkedoli Hatora of Shas or of the or the Ada as my leadership uh, in any any fashion. So I you know totally 
it's unfathomable to me the the knee jerk reactions. Um, and uh, you know, someone like Rustav, I do see as a leader within the mod, you know, within the modern Zionist uh, traditional community. So you know, I'm going to champion those people who I think you know are you know, as far as I know today, are ethically great. We we know no community is without uh, without its problematic characters and charismatic leadership and all kinds of aspects of leadership are dangerous. I, I just, yeah, I, I don't want to get into other aspects of it, but I, I think that that's exactly how we, we have to act in the world. It's interesting. It's interesting to me, and this might also play a role in the general conversation we're having. Before I wrote that blog, I had been in conversation with a certain well-known modern Orthodox rabbi from America, a very, very well-respected rabbi. And then after my blog, he hunted me down to thank me for that blog post and said, but we needed to come from Israeli rabbis. I mean, I don't count Israel. I've been here 30 years, but I'm still, you know, we'll never quite cross that Rubicon. Um, I know the feeling. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we both we both share that. He's right. But I think our voices are important. Um, and uh, and find those those leaders uh, are important. And we just have to we, we have to hold up what we think is the Devar Hashem and really the will of God and and with humility, with a lot of humility. So, you know, we with the modern Orthodox Zionist, modern, really liberal communities also had its share of characters who've fallen from grace. And some people covered up for them. Um, and we had to, I, I'm so nervous about, cautious about charismatic leadership because this is incredibly dangerous because you stop stop looking at at, uh, at what's really in front of you and say, well, it, it can't be. Let's face it, you and I are both Western trained, American Western trained. We have a certain suspicion about leadership and it will be accepting of facts. It will be coming, you know, news reports is uh, whatever. I, I think it's fair that both of us tend to be on the same page here um, and, and, and dwells our general circles. The, the example of the, the rabbis from Shas you're talking about, I think they come from a very different worldview where they circle wagons and that's what, what counts as our community. I don't know. You know, many people have written on the following rabbis who ra- rabbis who follow. Also, I want to be clear here. I always, I often hear, well, it's religious leadership that does this. It's not, right? We know it affects religious leadership. It affects Jews, non-Jewish religious leadership, and non-Jewish leadership in all kinds of ways. Special sexual impropriety and financial impropriety is everywhere, right? It's a yetzahara that every single human being has to contend with, and every community contends with. But we we uphold a certain banner that we think that we're trying to go to a higher will of uh, of God and a higher ethics. So I think that, you know, we know, we, we all know the famous story where Slanter, Slanter said, you know, I tried to fix the world, and I couldn't do that. So I'll fix my, you know, community, I couldn't do that. I'll fix my family, I can't do that, let me fix myself. So a certain humility of like, you know, just trying to be the best we can, and when our voices can be made public to, to get out there and make them public and, and push back, there's a practical aspect to this. There is a rumor that, that Ari Derry's brother might be up for chief rabbi. <laughs> right? Really? Yes. That's news to me. Yeah, I just saw that on uh, someone had posted from a, a certain uh, certain insider information. He's one of two people who are on a, a short list for the Svartan. <sighs> That's so we got to fight this corruption. I mean, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, personally, when 
when the two current chief rabbis, and I'm not talking about their qualifications, the fact that one chief rabbi is the son of a former chief rabbi and the other chief rabbi is the son of a former chief rabbi, even if they were the two most qualified candidates for the post, and I'm not arguing that they're not, right. even if they were, I would think, again, this might be my Western values coming through, that the appearance of nepotism should have said, this is a bad idea. Let us not make this look like it is a family inheritance who is the chief rabbi. Well, one of the other people supposedly on their short list is is for David Yosef, the brother of the current chief rabbi, he's also on the short list. Yes, the, but the Rambam says that. That's exactly what Rambam says. Anything that smells bad is a prodigal Hashem. That's what it is. It's exactly what he says. It has to pass the smell test. Um, and that's an elitist position. My teacher, uh, Professor Isor Tversky, Rabbi Tversky, you know, he said that everyone accused the Rambam of being elitist and the guy's perplexed. But truth of the matter is, in the Mishnah Torah, in this encapsulation where he says, profaning God's name is contingent on who you are, your stature, and if you do anything that people say badly about God because of you, even if it's not true, then that you bear the you bear the the, the responsibility for that. So yeah, it, it really does not it does not pass. This is not pass the smell test at all. Yeah, and I, I don't know what to say. Not my not my community. I mean, I'll come out against true. them. Happy to protest them because they really I don't see them as leaders. All right, Rabbi Berman, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you as a concluding question. You are both a parent and a teacher. How do you think that we, all of us, teachers, parents, should help inculcate these values of, as again, I keep quoting you, the kinder, gently religious Zionism and modern orthodoxy. How do we teach our children and our students that this is the Torah Judaism that we think is central rather than peripheral? How do we do that in the face of what seems to be a weakening community, a weakening emphasis on these values? How do we enable ourselves to make sure that we teach our children and students that this is the centerpiece of Torah Judaism? You know, a common trope that is that uh, moderates, it's hard to be passionately moderate and like, you know, including things. But I think that the, and, and I'm not. Gonna, I actually disagree with that. I know I, that's the trope, but I disagree with um, it. I think you can be passionately I, moderate. Well, you sound pretty bad. <laughs> I think we're both pretty passionate about the topics today. I, I think modeling for kids is really, really important. Um, I'm not, I want to, because we're at the end, I'm not switching topics. There's a particular topic of a rabbi who was accused of a lot of bad things that, that one of my kids was becoming enamored with and many of her teachers were enamored with and people could probably guess who it is uh, who passed away. And I pointed out that there are people who have very serious accusations. She had never heard that before because Israelis don't talk about these accusations. And I said, no, we have to be keenly aware of these things and, and raise them and, and, uh, um, and try and model what we think our Torah values and our human values. And that's the best thing for our kids and for our students. I try and be very, as, as an educator, I try and be very, very open and honest about my personal struggles, about the complexity, the issues that, that you've just raised, um, a, a teacher and a parent. And I, that's the best that we, we can do. And we can, like you said, we can be passionate about that. And I think my, the blog that you like addressed me about is passionate about that. We have we have to be passionate about uh, creating a, a society that we see is more just, is more open, is more broad, is more kind. Um, and you know, uh, I don't think Rav Chaim, when you quote Rav Chaim, you quote Kuriyos Lavechik, quote that famous statement of Rav Chaim about justice and looking out for the the poor. You know, they say about Rav Chaim that he used to check outside his door every night to make sure that no one had left a baby outside. Um, that's who we have to be. I, I don't know that I live up to that. That, but that's the model that we need to. We have to be compassionate about it. Um, they're, they're grumblings of people who want to rebel against 
this direction that the designers was going in and and um and more power to them and i'm you know doing gonna do whatever i can to 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 wave a banner which i, I think is a little banner of god i think that's it it's exactly what Chaim said, justice and kindness and, and loving people and, and trying to, you know, uh, Pirke Abo says that bring them to Torah. The only way we bring them to Torah is by, is through love and, and, and seeking a, a better world. I certainly agree with that. And I'm a Kohen, so I'm not allowed to go to the cemetery, but I've been told, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been told that the gravestone of Rav Chaim Brisker has on it the words, Ish HaChesed, the man of kindness, of Chesed. His children apparently decided to put that line on his grave, even though when it comes to learning, he was considered the greatest scholar of his generation. Rav Soloveitchik compares his revolution in Talmud study to the Copernican revolution, to that of Kant and philosophy. What Rav Chaim Brisker did in Talmudic learning was absolutely astonishing. And yet at the same time, his children felt that his unique characteristic, his defining quality was his kindness. And to me, that's a mission for all of us today. Rabbi Todd Berman, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. I enjoyed this and I think it was an important discussion. Thank you very much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.